guys, this is Kristen, and today we're here to talk a little bit about the business of anesthesia and what it takes to become an independent contractor as a CRNA. I'm here with Sandri Gayard. She is a CRNA who has experience in working with W-2 and a 1099, and she's currently working as an independent CRNA. She's willing to sit down with us and share some of her expertise on 1099 employment and as being an independent CRNA. Welcome, Sandri. Thank you. Good to be here. Sandri, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you've worked, what kind of practice models that you've worked in? Well, I'm one of those old diploma nurses. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad word, but when I was in nursing school or when I was getting out of high school, there were a lot of diploma schools out there, and naturally that's where one went. There were a few... Um, university-based nursing program. But I was, I'm an old diploma nurse, graduated from nursing school back in 1980 in New York, worked in New York for a few years, and then um, moved to California after I got married in San Diego. And I met my first nurse anesthetist in San Diego. Didn't even know what one was, but that I knew that was what I wanted to do. And did some research, went to Finally went to an anesthesia program in Erie, Pennsylvania. Went to um, Gannon University through Hammett um, Medical Center. Uh, got my um, master's in, in, in nursing with a certification in anesthesia from that program. And came directly to work um, in an anesthesia care team model here in Asheville, North Carolina. And I worked there until I decided to branch out and do some independent work in uh, 2007. Actually started getting my feet a little wet in the end of 2006, in 2007. And I've been, I've traveled to Massachusetts. I've been to um, Bangor, Maine. I've been to uh, Alaska, this little town called Bethel, Alaska, in the middle of nowhere. Um, I had one of the CRNAs uh, said to me that she's had CRNAs get on, get off the airplane in Bethel and didn't even leave the airport. They got back on the next flight that <laughs> evening and went back home because there's one flight in and one flight out. And that's how remote Bethel was. Um, so I've had a lot of experience in various settings, um, some not great situations, um, but you know, the bottom line is that you're there to try to offer the best care that you can. I enjoy where I practice now. I work with two great guys. We take care of each other. We care about each other. We actually look forward to going to work. Briefly, just to start out, why don't we tell our listeners a little bit about the difference between being a W-2 employee and a 1099 employee? Okay. Um, it's not as complex as we think it is, but there's some basic rules that goes, and the rules basically has to do with taxes, and that's pretty much what I narrow it down to. So one's working classification is based on an employer-employee relationship as it relates to three specific criteria. So if there's behavioral control, if there's financial control, and what the relationship of the parties involved. In a W-2 status, so there's a specific requirement by the employer. So you're directed as to the how, the when, the where, and with what okay. you're going to do your job. As an independent contractor, 
which can sometimes get a little fuzzy with a 1099 because you can have 1099s and independent practitioners working in the same setting. But the basic difference is that as an independent contractor, you don't have any requirements by an employee employer. Um, But 1099s working under supervision will now uh, we, we, we blur that little behavioral control or those three ki- criteria mm-hmm. that's involved. So you can have a 1099 that's an independent contractor, and you can have a 1099 that's in a care team. Okay. But the basics of the difference between a W-2, a 1099, and um, an independent contractor uh, has to do with finances, who's responsible for paying what, and who's controlling whom. Okay. So talking about independent contracting versus W-2, and you have been um, experienced with both of those. Um, Can you tell us what are some of the advantages in practicing um, as an independent contractor versus a W-2 employee? So um, I worked W-2 employer for a long time. Employee, it was, for me, it was easy. Mm -hmm. It's nicer to have somebody else in charge of all of the business and tax um, requirements Um, And so I just had to come to work and just do my work and not have to worry about the business side of things. Mm -hmm. And so that was good to an extent. But if you want to have a little bit more control over your life, then you might want to consider what other options are available. So for me, I think, in my opinion, there's a lot of real pros and cons to both types of working. Um, So what you choose to do really has to be a personal choice. you got to kind of weigh where you are in your life, and what working conditions do you want to be in? And I think we all kind of know when it's time to make a change. It's a scary thing because it's very comfortable to have somebody else take care of everything else mm-hmm. for you and you just come to work and do your work and leave and don't have to deal with anything. But how much control do you want to have? And it pretty much is comes down to a personal choice. So in my situation, I, I knew I needed to make a change in my work environment. I was comfortably very unhappy in my working situation. <laughs> and so um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I was. I was very comfortably unhappy. And so I was pretty terrified to kind of step out of my little comfort zone. And it wasn't until somebody said to me one day, so tell me why you work in here. What benefits are you getting? What benefits are you getting that you couldn't do for yourself? What's keeping you here? What are you afraid of? Mm-hmm. And then I had to really think about it. Really, what am I afraid of? And I was afraid to step out there and do something different and be afraid that I wouldn't know what to do. So then I really had to step back and kind of take a little inventory. Since I knew I wasn't happy, what other choices did I have? I knew a lot of folks who were practicing independently and they seemed to be managing. but. I just need to know all the little steps that come up. I don't like to have little surprises come up. I like things to be ordered. And now I'm stepping out of something that's not ordered. And I wouldn't know what to do. Would I know what to do? Would I know what questions to ask? Would I make the right choices? I didn't know. So I finally decided that I just had to make a change. I was either going to make a change or I was going to suffer. So it's pretty simple. Practice-wise, I was comfortable. I was very comfortable. Practice situation-wise, I was not. Now, would you recommend going into this kind of field right out of school for SRNAs, for example? For me, I thought I needed more time. 
I don't know, really know why I thought I needed more time. I think that if you have a really strong critical care background, because most of what we do, you've got to have strong critical care and clinical choices. And I think that if that experience is pretty solid and you've learned what you need to learn in the anesthesia portion of things, it's doable. I'm more cautious, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. for lack of a better way. Um, but it's doable. There's people I've known that's done it, and it's, like I said, it's a doable thing. But for me, I thought I needed more time. I thought I needed to build a, a stronger um, clinical anesthesia practice to supplement my critical care experience to be able to step out and do something on my own. And, you know, it, it's really difficult because you don't know what kind of support you're going to have once you get out there. And so I think that's the biggest fear is, are you going to have support should you need support? Mm -hmm. So... In my opinion, I thought I needed more anesthesia clinical experience before I stepped out. I don't regret it. Well, good. All right. Now, let's say you've been working as a W-2 employee for an anesthesia group, and you decide you want to travel, and you get hired as a 1099. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you're going to be responsible for that you weren't necessarily responsible for as being a W-2 employee. I know we already touched on this mm -hmm. a little bit in the beginning. And a lot of it does overlap. Um, I think you really need to have a good understanding of what's going to be expected of you from the business side of things. And I, I know when I stepped out seven years plus, I can't say if I knew really where to look, who to ask, and if I knew who to ask, what questions could I ask them. I didn't know exactly what would work for me. And so I did a lot of research. I asked around to a couple of people that's been doing it. And a lot of it is that you hope not to be learning as you go. You hope to know some stuff before you start. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing that you're now going to be responsible for, you need to make sure, do you want to incorporate? How do you start? Do you need a business attorney? Do you need a tax person? Do you need a tax person that does small business? Do you need a, a, an attorney that knows how to do small business and corporation? Are there different rules that apply to medical professionals versus other professionals? And there are, depending on the state you live in. Some of the things that you're going to be responsible for now, liability insurance. You're going to have to have health insurance. You're going to be responsible for the employer and employee portions of your Medicare and your Social Security taxes. You know, a lot of people don't even know what those are to begin with. We are responsible for right now, it's seven plus percent. So now 15% is what you're going to be responsible for. And you need to keep on top of all those things. Do you file your taxes quarterly? Do you pay your taxes quarterly? Um, what's the plans that you're going to do for if you're unemployed? Because now you're your own person. You have no unemployment. Do you need to look into unemployment insurance? Remember, if you don't work, you don't get paid. You got to start putting your money aside so that you can plan for vacations, plan for days off, plan for being sick. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that. A lot of things to consider. A lot of things to consider. And I knew there was a lot of things to consider. And I think that was the scariest part for me. Um, what are going to be your personal tax liabilities? If your business makes money, all the business expenses gets deducted. Whatever profits you made now becomes personal income. You got to start planning. How much money do I put away for taxes? If you're paying quarterly taxes, it's not going to cover all of your tax liabilities come the end of the tax year. 
It's going to cover all of your business portion, and which will give you some deductions to your personal side, but you still got personal taxes. And the more you work and the more money you make, the higher tax bracket. So there's a lot to consider. Um, and I didn't go into it to make money. I just wanted a better life. I wanted to have a little bit more control. I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility. And so there are people that's in it to make a bunch of money. That's just too much work for me. (laughs) I just need to be able to have a good life, do the things that I want to do, and be able to have enough money to pay taxes come the end of the year because that's nothing more stressful than worrying about will your tax liabilities be met. And that's my biggest concern every year is just making sure that there's enough money put aside to pay your taxes. And a a good rule of thumb is that you need to have at least 30% of what you bring home every week. Every every time you get paid, you need to have at least 30% of that put away because you don't know what tax bracket you're going to end up in. And there's nothing worse than at the end of the tax year, say you gross 200,000 and they say that you owe us 46,000 in taxes. Well, how much have you paid so far? How much have you paid estimated taxes? They penalize you if you don't pay enough estimated taxes, you know? So for me, that's the most stressful part, worrying about that my tax liabilities. And it takes a little bit to get it right. And I can't say that I've perfectly gotten it right, but at least I'm more prepared. (laughs) (laughs) So Sandri, with all of this said about becoming an independent contractor, what can you tell our listeners that is some of the best advice you can offer to someone who wants to take on this kind of endeavor? I think the best advice is to do your homework. You got to make sure that this choice is something that you want to make. Do your research. Talk to people that's already out there doing it. I wish there was a direct resource where you could just kind of click on the computer and say, help me with starting anesthesia independent contractor and kind of see what comes up. But the things that you're going to really need to know, you need to, if you plan to incorporate, and there are lots of reasons why you would incorporate. You want to incorporate to protect your personal assets or protect you from other people you're, you're associated with that might fall into a lawsuit. So you want to be incorporated so that you have a business side and a personal side and then that the the, the business side is protected and then thus protects your personal side. So I would say find you a business attorney, somebody who does small business. For a lot of states, um, and I, I'll talk about d- different type of business models that you, in corporations, um, find you a tax person that does small business. The first one I found was not very helpful because I didn't know what questions to ask and he was not willing to implicate himself to give me wrong answers is kind of how I finally figured it out. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what to do is what he would say. I said, but I just need somebody to help me understand what I'm responsible for so that I know what choices to make. It's not that you want somebody to tell you what to do. You just want the information so that you're doing the right thing. And maybe not everybody is as as skittish about taxes as I am, but I am. <laughs> Maybe it's somebody else has a, have a different concern, but my biggest concern was having the IRS call me and say, you didn't pay enough taxes, and we're wanting to look at everything that you've done mm-hmm. and figure this out. So just being upfront, 
and just trying to get as much information as you can. So there's a couple of different things. Do you want to incorporate as in the 1099? Do you need to be um, your own entity? Uh, there's a couple of different ones. You have your PC, which is your professional corporation, and that's available only to certain professions medical professions, and this is something that you have to apply through um, your state. This, whatever state licensed you is who you would apply for incorporation through. Um, an S-Corp is a little bit more specific. It requires, say, annual board meetings, documentation of such. So there's just little things that goes into it. And then your LLC, which is your limited liability corporation, which is very similar in protection in your professional corp, but it's a lot less complex, has a lot less paperwork. Your filings get to be less. Uh, so, But your LLC will combine the best features of your PC and your S-Corp. Okay. And so in speaking to a, a business attorney that does small business, that's kind of who can better help you make your choices. And my choice was a PC. Um, you have like an escort PC combination, and that's what I've done. So it just kind of depends. But you really need to make sure that you're getting good advice and that you're getting an attorney. Some people who are very business savvy can do that stuff for themselves. I was not. Could I do it now? I don't know if I'd want to. You know, but you just got to make sure that you're starting out correctly and that you're protecting yourself up front. Very good advice. So definitely get a business attorney and know your taxes. And know your taxes. <laughs> There's lots of information on the web. On, yeah. Online, you go to the IRS, they're willing to share information with you. Well, good. If you can understand what they're saying. And sometimes you need somebody to help you explain what they're saying. Yeah. But you just got to do your homework. For me... I love being an independent contractor, the flexibility of it, the people that I get to meet, the autonomy of it. You know, it's, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier <laughs> if I wasn't such a chicken, but that's all right. <laughs> Eventually we come around, we do cross the road exactly. every once in a while. <laughs> exactly. So I just want to talk to you a little bit about the practice that you're currently in. Now you are currently working as an independent, independent. CRNA. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about what you do working in a CRNA-only practice and how that's different from working in a anesthesia care team model. So our little practice, I think, is a, is a nice little part of the world down there. <laughs> we have, we're in a very small hospital. We have currently, I think we're up to 38 beds <laughs> with the addition of six new beds. But we only have three ORs. Uh, We do a lot of outpatient surgery, and we do um, a lot of, we have an orthopedist, and so our primary mode of our practice is orthopedics. And then we've got a general surgeon. We do a little urology, not our favorite, but we do it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, in my little practice, there's three of us on a regular basis, three CRNAs. And then we've got four other CRNAs who are I would say part-time peer, I would say PRN more so than anything else who we can call up to if we're going on vacation, we'll take a week or two or we'll take call or those sorts of things. So our little hospital is a, what they call a critical access, which is another distinction that, and when we talk about um, reimbursement, then that will become important to know, understand the difference between a critical access hospital and your regular community um, hospitals, and then your bigger universities that will bill very differently. So um, 
our contract with the hospital is owned by one of the three of us. And so he holds the contract with the hospital and then he contracts everyone else that works at the hospital. So we still have to go through medical staff review and get all of our credentials in order, but there's really only three permanent contractors, if you can have a permanent contractor, um, that's currently working there. Okay. So um, our busiest days tend to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So all three of us work on those days. And then on Thursdays and Fridays, then there's just two and we rotate those days. Okay. And we cover call, we cover weekends, we cover holidays. And in that setting, our CRNA that holds the contract now bills for our hours, which we submit to their business office, and they pay him, and then he pays us. Okay, so you're the, not a part of a group. We are not a part of a group. We yeah. are three independent practitioners, okay. one holding the contract, and then the other two contracting with that one that holds the contract. Okay, now, in a 1099 or in an independent contractor, we're still responsible for all of the same liabilities. We still have to cover our own insurance. We still have to pay our own health insurance. The 1099s that contract in an anesthesia care model are still responsible for their own insurances and their own health care. But I don't know if all of them have a business name or a business entity. I don't know that for sure. I just know for, in my situation, we all do. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the responsibilities that come along with being an CRNA-only practice. Um, kind of walk us through what you guys do for patients from pre-op to post-op. So our, our responsibility is pretty all-inclusive. Uh, we don't diagnose, we don't prescribe, what we do are thorough medical history review. We've got a pretty unique situation where we've got what we call our pre-op nurses. We've got two exceptional pre-op nurses that have worked in the OR and have worked in recovery. And so they are, they're very in tune with the things that's required for a patient going to surgery. And when we've set up a lot of um, checkpoints in place, and I wouldn't call them really standing orders, but just guidelines. We have a lot of guidelines already in place. And so when our patients come in for a pre-op, we sit down with them, review their history, review the plan of the anesthetic, what things in their medical history may impact their anesthetic, do we need to send them for a clearance from a cardiologist? They've got a cardiac issue that is an ongoing issue that they are getting routine checkups on. Do they need to go back and see that person, whoever that provider is, for say, I'm gonna have surgery, this is what's gonna happen. Do we need any additional instructions, not necessarily instructions, but any additional suggestions or things that you think that might not be necessary? Do they need to go have a stress test? Do they need to go have such and such? When was the last stress test? What meds are they taking? How is this surgery going to impact them? If they're under the care of a pulmonologist, do they need to go back and, and have a follow-up with this person before surgery? Case in point, we had a lady with adrenal, had no adrenal glands. All right, so GC is a regular endocrinologist. What's going to be our maintenance dose? How much do we need to increase her, her maintenance dose of steroids? Does she need additional stress dose, and how do we manage that? And those sort of things, we're not prescribing those things. We go back to these specialty um, providers and ask for their input so that we can better take care of the patient. 
And so all of the things that we feel may be of consequence that will impact their anesthetic or their outcome after anesthesia and after surgery, we address all those things and send them to the appropriate people to make sure that we're giving them the best care. So not having an anesthesiologist there to sit with the patient and, and then order these things or do these things themselves, we have the resources to still take care of the patient by what's available to us around it. Great. So you have to be in tune with and knowing that these things are important and have to be addressed so, so that when they come for surgery, everything is already in place. And that's a lot different. It's a lot different than when you would normally Correct. do in, let's say, working for a hospital or working for an anesthesia Correct. care team model. It's a lot different because this has already been done by someone else. By the time you see the patient, you're just having your first interaction with the patient, usually day of surgery. Someone else has already done all the other groundwork to get them to that point. But we're seeing them, our, 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 our best case scenario, we like to see them two weeks prior to surgery. We sit down with them, we go over their history, we make sure all of these things are, are have been requested. Do they have old records? Do they have old um, surgery re that needs to be reviewed? Um, do they need to go get a stress test? You have to have enough time to make sure that all these things are gonna be looked at. And so we're starting this way before they show up for surgery, day of surgery, and making sure that everything in place is in place by the time they come in on their actual day of surgery so we don't have cancellations and we don't have surprises. We don't like to be surprised. You know? And I think we're well prepared because we do stay ahead of things and make sure that the patients are well reviewed before they show up for surgery. So that's the difference is that now you're responsible for ensuring that all this is done. We're not prescribing, like I said, and we're not treating, but we're sending them to the appropriate people to make sure that these things are taken care of before they come back and that they are optimum when they come in for surgery. So you go in, you do the anesthetic. What mm -hmm. about postoperatively? How are you looking over these patients so, after their surgery? Um, I, I tell them that they belong to us from the time we meet them to the time we get them either ready to go home, get them back out to their room, or even after surgery, the ones that do stay in-house. We still follow up on them. If they do need medical coverage, that's where the hospitalists will take over the ones that are going home. So we're just making sure that whatever anesthetic that we've provided for them, that they have appropriate instructions to go home on. If we're putting nerve blocks in, people are going home with infusion pumps for nerve blocks, making sure that they have appropriate patient teaching, appropriate follow-up, which is being done on a continuous basis. So we don't put them to sleep, wake them up, or put them in a block and, and dismiss them after they're done. We're, we want to make sure that they're fully recovered from the things that we have done to them. And so there's a lot of follow-up. We do um, post-op phone calls, in-house post-op visits, and follow-up just to make sure that what we've done to them and that they're pleased with the outcome of their anesthetic. So we, we're pretty hands-on from the time we meet them until the time they leave. And a lot of them are repeat people. They come back, you, they come back in, you already have a good history on them. You already have a, a good idea of, of how to manage them, dealing with them on a, on a regular basis. I think that's great, you know, getting to see the whole picture, mm -hmm. you know, from the beginning to the end and making sure that they're going home and Correct. they're in good hands Correct. going home. Because they're yours from the time you get them until the time they leave and they do come back and visit you just to make sure <laughs> <That's> that <great. laughs> everything's um, in order. 
I want to talk to you a little bit about the federal mandate for reimbursement for anesthesia mm-hmm. services. Now, it's required that in order to be reimbursed for anesthesia services by Medicaid and Medicare, CRNAs are to be under the medical supervision of a physician. Now, there are currently a total of 17 states that have chosen to opt out of this requirement, and to my understanding, North Carolina is not one of them. Despite this, you're still able to work in a CRNA-only practice. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me how that's possible and how you're able to be reimbursed for services? Now, remember when we talked about um, critical access? Yes. Um, And that plays a big part in the rural communities because the rural communities, the rural community hospitals who have critical access status are now able to employ CRNAs or contract CRNAs to provide their services and still get reimbursed. We get reimbursed under Medicare Part A, which is for CRNAs providing anesthesia in a a rural or a critical access situation. Okay. Now, do you have to have a physician sign that is under supervision? And who is that physician considering the fact that you are a CRNA-only facility? So signature, and and we need to understand whose rule it it is to have a signature. A signature is a federal mandate. Okay. And and I don't know how the states kind of got how this signature thing got carried over to the states opting out or not opting out because the signature on the chart is required by the federal government, mm-hmm. not by the state. And so somewhere in there that's used as a, I, I won't say diversion, but I think is a misunderstanding of the surgeons who need to sign somewhere on the record, but they're not responsible for you. And that's where the cloud came in is because a lot of the, um, I think the association was trying to imply to the surgeons that if they signed our charts, they were now legally liable for signing our chart. But signing the chart is a federal mandate for them to be able to get reimbursed for the procedure itself. It has nothing to do with the anesthetic being delivered. Okay. It's an overall federal mandate that there be a a physician signature on the chart for anybody to be reimbursed, not just to CRNAs. Okay. So in North Carolina, there is no law that says that we have to be supervised by a physician. So we are able to practice as independent CRNAs as long as billing is a different story. Billing is a whole different story. To be reimbursed by Medicare Part A, Mm -hmm. a physician has to Correct. Sign that So that's how you guys are able to do that. Correct. Correct. A lot of surgeons were were afraid to sign the chart because they felt that now they're liable for what we do. But we're independent practitioners. We have our own standards to practice. We have our own licensure to practice under. We have our own requirements to, to practice under. And if we, as say, we're independent practitioners and we're providing the, the anesthetic service, then we are liable for whatever it is that we do. Now, the difference comes out now when you are in a practice situation and a surgeon now dictates to you how to deliver your anesthetic. Now, so now that whole rule has changed because now you're, we've changed and gone back to the how, the with what, and whom. And so if somebody else is telling you what to do, I don't want such and such and such done for my case. Well, doctor, if you would like me to do such and such, then you are now dictating the care that I provide and are thus 
liable for the outcome of what you're dictating. Mm -hmm. So I tell them, be careful what you ask for and know what you're asking for, what you're asking for when you want to dictate how I practice my anesthetic. So you just have to be clear on the rules and you, and you need to know the rules yourself. For sure. And my big thing is that I don't get myself into anything that I can't get myself out of. And so if I'm concerned up front, I'm either not going to do it or I'm going to get help. And that's how we keep ourselves out of trouble. So just to recap, with regards to liability, when you have a physician signing for the federal reimbursement, mm -hmm. they are not liable They're whatsoever not liable at all. to anything, no, to anything that, that we do. Okay. And that's why we carry liability insurance. So overall, very happy with where you're at. Overall, it was a great, it was a great change. It was a scary change, but it was a great change. Good. Well, I just want to thank Sandri for coming out and sitting down and talking with us today. I think we all got some very good, useful information about becoming a independent practice CRNA and what it takes to really get into that side of anesthesia and the business of anesthesia. The business of anesthesia. I think it would be great if we had more open dialogue with our, our new um, CRNAs, our SRNAs, and our more seasoned CRNAs to, to really honestly share I wouldn't call it a, a turmoil. It really isn't turmoil, but it's to, to unmuddy the water. I think that overall, we all want to give the best care to our, our people, our patients that we take care of, regardless of being SRNAs, CRNAs, or MD anesthesiologists. And I feel that if we all remembered why we came into it, and you know, I'm being idealistic. I, I, I guess that's just my nature. Um, if we remembered why we came into it and, and really f kept the patient care in the forefront of everything and, 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 and not let all the finances cloud everything, there, there are people that's in it to, to, to make money. And, and I would be crazy to think that I don't need to make enough money to live on. But how much do you need to live on? And the bottom line is, who suffers in the end? Mm -hmm. If we just keep in, in mind that we want to give the best care, and there are exceptional CRNAs that give exceptional care, same as there are exceptional anesthesiologists who give exceptional care. But there are some not so good ones on both sides. And the aim should be to weed out the not so good ones on both sides and not try to undo one versus the other, because that's not what it's about. What it's about is giving the best care and having our patients do well and be safe and have a great experience and, and come back to you should they need another anesthetic. Want to come back to you should they need another, another anesthetic because they're going to be taken care of. And they don't have to, we don't have to worry about the who's doing what, who's making what. That's not what it should be about. And we just need to be honest about it and just do the right thing. Thank you, Sandri. 